You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. He is enthroned upon the praises of his people. And I think what that means is that we put him back where he's meant to be in our lives. And uh, really that is kind of in keeping with the message even though that wasn't. So I'm going to start here. I'd just like to have a little buffer zone as the kind of shuffling's taking place. Perspective is a really funny thing, isn't it? I mean, two people could describe exactly the same event and sound completely at odds with each other. I mean, it was a work do, it was a party, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to leave that right there, okay, just leave that hanging in the air. All right, no more talking about that. You know, it's entirely possible that you and I could view the same object, the same event, or even the same person completely differently. It, it, it's possible that you all individually may view me completely differently from each other, and even from how I visualize myself, how I perceive myself to be. Like how you, who you think I am will be quite different to who Jess thinks I am, thank goodness. <laughs> All right, she's the only one that gets the full access and you are so blessed not to have that. <laughs> Jess has taken that on the chin for you all, okay? So just give her a little hug afterwards and say, well done. Um, <laughs> And how you view me, or how you view the person sitting next to you, will probably range, uh, you know, depend on a, a range of factors, yeah? Uh, within your own experience, your own history, your perceptions, your, your kind of character itself. It will depend upon where you are standing. It will depend upon where you are viewing from. It will depend upon your vantage point. Now, if, does anyone like photography here? Anyone into that? Just, okay, so one or two people. The, the difference between an excellent photo and a completely rubbish photo um, is often, if it's the same subject, it is a different view or a different vantage point. It is the way that you focus that changes. You know, you could go to the same beach, take the, take the same photo of the same beautiful vista that you see in front of you, and you can get a completely different picture. And some of you might have come back from holiday at some point and thought, oh, it was way better than that. My photos look rubbish. And then you see somebody on telly has taken a photo of the same beach, and you're like, why couldn't I do that? Vantage point. It's where you are focusing from. It, often it depends upon, are you willing to get into a different position? That's the difference in perspective. Are you willing to put yourself into a different position? Perspective is about how you view something. Uh, am I short or are you just too tall? <laughs> because a short person's not going to come up to me and go, you're really short. But a tall person's going to kind of put, uh, it, come on. Like, why do people put their elbow on your head and go, all right? <laughs> and you're like, what's the weather like up there? <laughs> Are you a kind of glasses half full or a glasses half empty kind of person? That's perspective. That's viewpoint. When life gives you lemons, is the saying, like, what do you do? Make lemonade? No, I like suck on a lemon. <laughs> Sour face, you know. That's what I do with lemons. Um, Regarding my current circumstances, my perspective may not be an accurate representation 
it may not be hopeful or helpful to actually have this perspective that I currently have, and it may be holding me back. Do you hear that? This morning, my perspective might be holding me back. As a saying, a change is as good as a break. So, we can change our perspective even as the surroundings stay the same. And actually, our, our, our perspective has far more to do with our own headspace than it does to do with the circumstances outside of ourselves. Okay? Actually, that's why mindfulness is so popular right now. You, you go to uh, Waterstones or something like that, and you see there's a massive section. If you go to the religion and spiritual, spirituality section, you might find one or two little Bibles, and then a massive section about mindfulness and stuff like that. Uh, because it's about, that's about changing your perspective, but let me caution you here, because I think there's some dangers attached to that whole mindfulness thing if you take Christ out of it. If you move him from the center, whatever you do, any self-help is ultimately not going to help you at all. So into Philippians, and, and now in this letter, we've already glimpsed at what Paul, uh, what his perspective looks like, despite his surroundings, despite the chains that he is currently in, despite the restrictions and the limitations, he is literally chained to a person in a prison cell, and he comes here and he's like, I consider it joy. You know, that's his perspective. He's not glum in this place. I mean, would we say that his outlook is positive? <laughs> Pretty much, you know, but are his circumstances positive? Well, no. <laughs> he's, he's in prison and he's potentially facing death. Eventually he gets beheaded, I think. Uh, correct me, somebody theological, if I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that he gets beheaded. Paul has realized and seen that the perspective of the Philippian church themselves with regard to his situation might be one of concern and maybe even anxiety. So right now, he turns to try to shift their perspective. He's already got a fresh perspective on his circumstances. Now he wants to say to them, it's okay, guys. It's okay. Calm down. Consider this. So we just want to zoom in on a couple of verses today, verse 12 to 14, and it says this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. There's something remarkable going on here. Paul's in chains. Uh, and the people who are holding him captive are hearing about Jesus. And they know that he is in those chains because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And they now know what that faith looks like. You know, there's this thing I heard someone saying to me uh, that what actually happened with this guard, the Praetorian guard, it was like, it was like an elite kind of bunch of soldiers, okay? Uh, and there was, they almost had a religion within their own ranks, and the religion was Caesar. Like, their whole purpose was not just to protect Caesar, but, but to actually elevate Caesar. And Caesar was often seen like a deity. And so this was kind of a, a religious circle, if you like. And they were elite, they were toughened warriors. And what actually happened was that one of them would be chained to Paul. 
And that every, I don't know how many hours, every few hours, they would change guards. So through the day, Paul might be chained to eight different people and guess what he was going to be talking about to each of them? I mean, incredible. He could have sat there just glum. And yet what he did was he used it as an opportunity. Mate, you're not going anywhere, so let me tell you. I do this on the phone. I had someone phone me the other day claiming to be from the National Grid, right? He phoned the church phone number, said he was working for the National Grid, and said, like, in another accent that wasn't British, he said, um, I, we need to come and change your, uh, your meter. And I said, well, wouldn't our supplier be doing that? Yes, I'm your supplier. I'm the National Grid. And I said, I, I don't think you quite understand how it works in this country, that the national grid kind of feeds the suppliers and the supplier feed the consumer. Yes, but you need us to come and fix this. And I was like, no, I think we've got a fairly new distribution board. We're, we're all good here. And he was insistent that he worked for the national grid. And I, I pressed it a little bit. I kept pressing it a little bit. And, and then I just said, and I didn't mean this in any nasty way, I said, are you happy with the decisions that you've made? Because it was becoming clear that he was trying to defraud us in some way, defraud me in some way. And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, let me tell you something. You've just phoned a church and I'm the pastor. <laughs> and while you're on the phone, I'd like to tell you how you can break out of that life that you're currently living. I, I wanna, it wasn't a long phone call after that. <laughs> but I was like, I just want to tell you about Jesus. You know, because you're kind of chained to me for the minute. You phoned me. <laughs> I'm going to trust that you're not going to hang up. And I'm going, to tell, I'm going to use that as an opportunity. And what Paul's talking about here, let's dive into the circumstances. He mentions the past. He mentions the present. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And then he goes on that he's in chains. So that's the present. What has happened to me, and I am in chains. He looks back at the past. He talks about the present, and next week and the week after, we'll look at how he views the future. Let me pause. Are we not sitting here this morning affected, not just by where we are, but by where we've been, by what is around us currently, by what has been done to us, by what has been spoken over us, and by what we have done ourselves. You are not sitting here today in whatever frame of mind you're sitting in, like entirely fresh. You are coming with history. And I'm just praying. In fact, let me just do that now. Heavenly Father, I just, right in this moment, Everything that comes to mind right now, from our past, distant or recent, that is hurting us, that is cutting us, that is distracting us, that is distorting our perspective, would you come and heal that now? Particularly God, words spoken over us, negative words that have such impact. As James says, these words have the power to set things on fire. And yet... The, our mouth should be speaking words of life. So, Holy Spirit, now I speak words of life over us here that you have come to redeem and restore. So do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at what happened. Okay. 
in Paul's life when he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. The answer depends upon geographically where, where you think Paul was writing from, but it's, it's actually widely assumed that it was from Rome, uh, that this was perhaps his final incarceration. We can't be 100% sure of that, but really, if you want to look at what Paul's referring to in terms of what has happened to me, you could take your pick. I mean, in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 11, sorry, he, he talks about imprisonments, accusations, mockings, beatings with, with rods, whips, and stones. Like, I mean, like a variety of weapons used against him there. He talks about shipwrecks. He talks about knights being cast adrift in the ocean on his own with, I guess, sharks around him. He doesn't know if he's going to survive to the morning apart from he's going to trust in Jesus. He's gone through days with hunger. He's gone through days with thirst. He's experienced those near-death experiences and been through many dangers, toils, and snares. How's your day going? Like, when you look at what Paul had been going through and says that this is actually to advance the gospel. And I'm often completely distracted from my perspective because the dog did a whoopsie on the floor. You know, and that, that's my headspace. And I'm like, no, my day is going really badly. And yet here's Paul. All of this stuff. And the Philippians know about this. They've seen it. He doesn't really need to tell them. Because when he was with them, he was accused. He was just narrowly escaping a massive beating and he was imprisoned. In fact, when he says this is to the advance of the gospel, I, I bet he's going, hey, Philippian jailer, you and your family, remember this. This is the position I was in when your family got saved. Perspective, perspective. And there's something really important here. He says, I am in chains for Christ. Yesterday's trouble led to today's chains, but the trouble and the chains are because of his faith in Jesus. He wasn't in chains because he was guilty of a crime. It, it wasn't a misjudgment or a misdemeanor. It, it wasn't a mistake or a lapse of judgment or anything like that. It wasn't because of his sin in his life that he was in chains right here and right now. It was because he was standing for Jesus Christ, not budging on the truth of the gospel, not being swayed to dilute that gospel but standing upon it. This is important. What Paul was saying that landed him in trouble was cutting against the grain of the societies in every place where he went. Jesus is the only way. You, you must repent to deny yourself. And yes, God does so love the world that he gave his only son. Yes, Jesus hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through himself and through the cross. But those who do not believe, it says, are under condemnation already. 
That we, we are spiritually dead until we are made alive with Christ. Spiritually dead is under wrath and condemnation until we are made alive in Christ. Through his grace, by the way, not by our works, but through his grace. And this is unpopular. Do not be conformed to the patterns around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Standing upon Scripture is unpopular. It will get us in trouble. It will. The cute baby Jesus, you know, in in a manger surrounded by straw and and kids being shepherds coming along and maybe a couple of sheep and things like that, that, that's not going to get us in trouble. You know, sending somebody a Christmas card that says, you know, may the peace of the Lord be upon you this Christmas time, or something, that's not going to get you in trouble. Doing nice things for your neighbor, that's not going to get you in trouble. Keeping myself to myself isn't going to get me in trouble. And you know when people come up and say, you know, oh, I'm glad you've got your faith. I think it's really nice. There's something a bit wrong there, isn't there? Because if they knew, if they knew, it would be offensive. The saying that I am, and therefore you are, as guilty before God as any other man throughout history is offensive. Obviously not including Jesus. Saying that without Jesus we are sinners under condemnation is offensive. Facing, uh, saying that we're facing destruction or the reality of hell without the rescue of Jesus is offensive. It will land you in trouble, even if it's just a bit of a kind of frosty kind of debate with a friend of yours, it will get you in trouble. That God created mankind in some kind of order and distinction is unpopular. It will get you in trouble. That, that he dares to suggest that his created, within that, there, there's a particular type of makeup and structure for the family unit, that's offensive in society, that is offensive. And saying that another person's religion is wrong is offensive. But if we as believers believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if we believe that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then that means very rationally and logically that Jesus is the only way. And if Jesus is the only way, Muhammad isn't the way. Buddha isn't the way. Mindfulness isn't the way. Self-help isn't the way. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Holy Spirit, sink that into our hearts right now. It's offensive. You look at the Ashes Bakery. They didn't refuse to serve somebody. They just refused to write something particular on their cake that they disagreed with. You know, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Tom, make me a cake. Well, firstly, I'd say, jog on, ask Andrew. (laughs) He's way better. Get Andrew to make your cake. But if somebody was asking me to ice a cake and they were like, could you put Jess's Amore on on it? I'm not going to write that because I love Jess. You know, if if they ask me to put anything against Jess on that cake, I'm not going to do it. I don't care how much they want to pay me. I'm not going to do it. 
And that's effectively what the Ashes Bakery kind of got in trouble for. Um, there's a Polish pastor who I've been kind of communicating with who's in trouble now because he's upset the Roman Catholic Church and the government. I mean, it gets pretty big. Just because of his opinions about Jesus being the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. There, there's a lady in the Finnish parliament that Ron highlighted to me this week. Uh, she actually serves in parliament and she's facing prosecution for something termed as hate speech because she believes she stands upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason for what happens to Paul here. This is why he's in chains. This sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Like what I've just said, all those offensive things, it does sound offensive. Listen, the gospel is offensive. If it's not offensive, we're probably not actually speaking the gospel as it stands. Like it is offensive. The most offensive thing is that you're wrong. That's the most offensive thing, that I am in the wrong without Jesus. That is offensive. To say that I need to repent and surrender to a different king other than myself, that's offensive. Because we all want to be able to control our own lives. But, but the truth is, it might sound offensive, but the answer and the freedom and the redeeming, healing, kind of effective thing is there in Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is believe upon him. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to clean your act up before you come to him. You don't have to prove that you're a better person. You just come and you bow down and you say, I can't do this. I need you, Jesus. The second thing is that this served to advance the gospel. The fact that he was in chains because of this unpopular, offensive kind of strategy that Paul had put in place in all the places he went, which is just to give the gospel, it got him in trouble, but even that served to advance the gospel. How many of you and me find the idea of evangelism just frightening? You know? You're not on your own. It is scary. If I'm honest, the reason I, I, I'm not afraid of somebody punching me, I'm like, yeah, I, I actually want a bit of a flatter nose. That'd be quite awesome because mine's <laughs> ginormous. You know, I, I don't mind the physical stuff. I, I don't want to look like the idiot. Yeah, I, I, I don't even like it when people are angry with me. <laughs> like, that's why I don't like evangelism. It doesn't mean I don't do it. The statement that Paul makes is a declaration of his perspective shift. These things have led to advance the gospel. All of the things that you thought of a moment ago in your past, all the words spoken over you, all the things you've done, people have done to you, all the regrets, all the mistakes, all of this stuff. What if all of that could serve to advance the gospel? That's what redeeming looks like. That's what I will buy back the years that the locusts have eaten looks like. That, that's what, I will not snuff out a smouldering wick and I will not break a bruised reed. That's what it looks like. Because he doesn't just leave that smouldering wick, he doesn't just leave that bruised reed, but he replaces their strength and reignites the light. That's what he does, he redeems, he redeems. And so for Paul, his waste ground turned into a witness. Perhaps it's this confidence that he had in Christ that led to the growing boldness of others. That they're seeing these toughened soldiers 
And some of them are responding to the gospel. That's quite clear. Maybe some of them hate Paul. Maybe they despise having to be chained to him, but some of them... Imagine how many lives, how many families... Think of the Philippian jailer. His whole family gets saved because Paul and Silas are singing songs in prison. And God reveals his tangible presence. Paul's incarceration led to encouragement. It doesn't seem likely, does it? Like, I don't know, if Naomi, if you get arrested tomorrow for, for the gospel and you're put in prison, like, I don't know if that would encourage me, if I'm honest. I'd be like, oh, that sucks. That's so discouraging. Like, if COVID comes along and, and closes down the church for a year, I'm not encouraged by that. I'm, I'm fairly discouraged by that, if I'm honest. But what if all of these circumstances, all of them, all of them, can be turned around for the advance of the gospel? What if all of these things, with the God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, what if all things means, wait for it, all things? All things. Like Joseph. His brother's sin was horrific. They threw him in a hole. They, they pretended that he had been killed by bears or beasts. They went home and told his dad, sorry, Joseph is no more. He's been ripped apart. And they sold him into slavery. His brothers. I mean, that's horrible. <laughs> it's really nasty. And yet, when they're reunited, uh, and when they see the redeeming work of Yahweh, Joseph is able to say what you meant for harm, God intended for good. So even sin, when given back to God and, and surrendered, God can use your mistakes for his glory and for your good. That's, by the way, that's not a permission. Go and do what you like because God can use it anyway. Like, no. But it means that those things that you carry that you regret, that cut you, that, that get into your kind of guilt part of your brain, God can redeem those things and turn them around for your good. And what's been spoken over you in the past can be turned around and used for good. I mean, what kind of voice is spoken over Joseph as his brother's looking down on him in the pit, see you later? What kind of voice is that? What kind of rejection is he feeling there? And we can distance ourselves by a few thousand years and say, oh, that's just a story in the Bible. What if that was you and it was your brothers and sisters who had dropped you into that hole and walked off? How would you feel? That's something spoken over you that has immense power. I still wrestle with things that my mum said when I was a kid. I, I, God uses them. He's using them right here, right now, this very second for his glory and for my good. Do you see? You know, some of the quirks, like spelling, like my spelling's atrocious, okay? It is absolutely terrible. I'm not dyslexic, but I present myself like I'm dyslexic because of my spelling is so bad. But the worst thing is, if anyone points it out, it's just like knives. It's just like that voice, that, that presence over me. Bang, you spelt that wrong. Bang, get it right. Bang, you're not as clever as your brother. Bang, he went to Oxford. You're not, you're, we're going to put you in the army or something. Oh no, you've got asthma, you're not even good enough for that. That was the kind of thing. 
And yet, God redeems. God redeems for his purposes. Come on, church. He redeems for his purposes. I was teaching in school. There was this girl there. She was a bad girl. She was like the kind that you remember their name. So I'm not going to tell you their name, but any teacher here knows if you can remember the name of a child, it's because they're a right pain in your backside, right? Generally, probably. Margaret's going, no, no, no. She, obviously, Josh, that's kind of awkward. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, uh, I think Margaret taught Josh many years ago. Um, so we remember your name, Josh, because you are amazing. You're brilliant. <laughs> All my teachers knew my name when I was at school. But here I am, secondary school, and there's this girl, and she normally she gets on with me okay. She's a troublemaker in every class, but she gets on with me all right. And one morning she comes in, and she's all bent out of shape. She's just like, kind of like kicking things around, like threatening to punch people, all this kind of stuff. And I, I said that out in the corridor, like, nice and calmly, I'm coming out, I'm going to chat to you. Like, just, just go wait. Storms out, bang, closes the door. And like hear her banging on things in the corridor. And when I went out, I just said, calm as anything. I said, look, we normally are okay, right? I, haven't, I don't think I've done anything this morning to upset you. Why are you kind of bent out of shape? And she said, you can't possibly know what it's like to be at my house. You can't possibly know what it's like to have this fear of you. You can't possibly know what it's like to have somebody telling you that you're not good enough. You're, not, you're never going to amount to anything. And I broke right there in the corridor, secondary school. And I'm crying. And I said, no, I do know. And I don't know your specific circumstance, but this I know, the feeling I know, the way that that punishes you through your life, I know, but I want to tell you this, there is hope. I want to tell you this, that I met with Jesus. I'm not even supposed to say this in school. I met with this guy called Jesus who changed my life and started healing all of that stuff. There is hope. And we were both blubbering there in the corridor. And to this day, I know that that was one of those moments where what the enemy meant for harm in my life, God used for his glory, for my good. Everything that you carry can be redeemed for his glory and for your good. You know, what if some of the things that I could consider to be hurt or hindrance actually turn out to be of benefit in my life? Put them in the hands of God, that's where the benefit happens. Try to wrestle it yourself. You're going to carry this in painful ways. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. If you've got a Bible, just have a look at this. It's, I think this is such an important verse for this. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Now listen. So that... There's a purpose so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You are perfectly positioned for somebody else's life to speak into it. You, nobody else has that same vantage point, that same perspective point. You and everything that's led up to where you are Everything and all of you who know Jesus Christ and have received him into your heart, all of you, all of you have that kind of dynamic where the comfort that you've received, the strengthening that you've received, the forgiveness that you've received can be passed forward in the gospel. 
and used for his glory. Amen. So that means everything good and bad is used for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In God's hands, obstacles open opportunity. In God's hands, opposition opens opportunity. I, I want to call this the ooh principle because <laughs> I alliterated it nicely. Obstacles open opportunity. Okay? The ooh principle. It's that light bulb moment when you see from a different perspective and you go, ooh. <laughs> I hadn't seen that before. The ooh perspective. To be able to say this looks bad but is actually good requires this perspective shift. Now, I want to make sure that I don't just leave you hanging there because if I stop here and say, you know, we need to shift our perspective and we can do that in Christ. Well, great, but so what? How how do we enaction that in our lives? What does it mean? And, And how do I even get on board with that? Because you've come back to this time and time again. I'm speaking for some of you, maybe all of you, I don't know. But you, you feel like you've, you've just come back to the same problem. Or, or your head spins round to the same perspective. Or your mind space gets crowded again in the same way. And I want to tell you honestly right here, right now, like I don't go through a week without having some kind of crushing level of anxiety. I mean that. Okay, that's, that's not that I'm falling apart. Don't worry. Don't phone the apostolic church head office and say, hey guys, do something about Tom. In fact, I think it goes with the territory. Because when you're standing on the word of God and you're pushing back against the darkness, what's the darkness going to do? It's going to come and attack. And I'm okay with that. Like I, I put strategies in place to shift my perspective. But on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, I have to do that. Sometimes I don't feel like I win the battle. I just want to be honest with you there. Because otherwise, it looks like I'm telling you something that's unattainable, but it's not. You know, a habit takes a long time to form. Like a proper habit. Playing the guitar, like, it requires muscle memory that you develop over time and time and practice and practice and practice. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. We need to apply principles and do them again and again and again. And as we do that, we kind of get a spiritual muscle memory for it. But we need to shift perspective. The perspective of Friday looks like defeat, but the perspective of Sunday looks like victory. If we look at the cross, it looks just the most ridiculous way to win a battle. And yet, it's the battle to win all battles through that resurrection from the cross. When Paul says, I want you to know He's saying, I want you to know how to change your perspective. In many ways, we get to choose how we perceive something. We lead ourselves into this. And how we allow our perspective to land will affect our outlook, our behavior, our headspace, and even our obedience. But let me tell you, your circumstances only have as much power over you as you determine to give them. I'm thinking of Corrie ten Boom in a concentration camp in the Second World War. I'm not saying that she found it jolly. Of course not. 
but her perspective constantly, she shifted it to look to Jesus. And she could see the Redeemer working through that whole time. Don't give it power. But I'm always amazed at how quickly I can get negative and moan about things, even good things like manna. I, I want to try and wrap up in about five minutes. Are we good with that? I'm so amazed at how quickly I can just drop into a negative space. You know, sometimes even good things will get me moaning about it. Think about manna in the desert. Think about the Israelites. Is there, they need God's provision. He provides this mysterious kind of bread-like thing on the ground. None of us have ever seen what it looks like, but it sustained them completely. Uh, and yet they started to moan about it. Hey, God, can we not have some quail for a change? You know, I mean, because that's what I want, obviously. Like Tesco's is all out of quail at the moment. But, you know, they're kind of moaning. God, I want something different. Why? why? I know, yeah, okay, you're keeping us alive. You're, you're giving us this provision, but it's not very exciting, God. Could you give me something a bit more, please? Uh, like, how? Like, this is miraculous stuff that's never been seen before and never seen since. And yet they whinge about it and they moan about it. And when I'm in that kind of negative space, it's a spiral that won't break until someone or something snaps me out of it. Well, how does that happen? Paul's actually going to tell us later on in in chapter four a bit more about how we do this. But what we focus upon matters. The first thing, if you want to shift perspective, is to move the vantage point. If you think about that camera, think about that photo, change position. What do we do? We focus upon what never changes. If you can see out of the window now, you see over there, it's not a very nice day, but you can see, maybe some of you can see the ocals over there. Now, now sometimes those, I'm impressed with sometimes they look really distant. Sometimes they look really close. I mean, nobody's moved them, but the, it just, the perception is different. Sometimes you can see every contour because of the way the light falls and they look 3D. Other times they look 2D because it's just kind of a flat light across them. And sometimes you can't even see them at all. And I've never woken up and I've never known anyone who's woken up, looked out their window and gone, oh my goodness, somebody nicked the ocals. <laughs> like, they've gone. <laughs> I'll never see them again. Because you just know they're there. They don't change, apart from seasonal variations. The ochles are there. They are going to stay there. Forgive my pronunciation of this as well. They are constant. I've never had any anxiety over where the ochles are. I know that if I want to get into the hills, I just drive over that bridge, go find them, and go for a walk. They are not going anywhere. Jesus, the same, yesterday, today, forever. Your perspective might change. Sometimes you might see contours that you haven't seen before. Sometimes he'll look distant. Sometimes he'll look close. Sometimes you don't even see him at all and you can't perceive him. Lead your heart to know that whatever the clouds are that are there, he is there. And you can walk into the hill of his glory and of his love and you can find him there. Change perspective. What does this look like in practice? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's Peter fixing his eyes on Jesus and saying, save me, when he is sinking in the water. It's Jehoshaphat's prayer saying, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. It's the psalmist saying, I will 
I will worship. I will praise you. Psalm 138, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will. Not, not when I'm feeling like it. I feel like I But I will. I choose. My, my will is involved in this. I'm going to bring myself to worship you. I think worship is one of the most key, important things. It's not this. This is a tool within worship. Our singing together is an encouragement, and it's something that we do together as God's people to lift incense to his throne and to to give glory together, and it encourages each other. But worship is here before it's here. And it's here and here before it's here. And sometimes you have to lead into that. I spoke to somebody this week who, who actually sent me a message to say, I'm having one of those moments where just the bottom seems to have fallen out and I'm having these horrendous doubts. I, I phoned that person later on because I was just like, I, I just want to check in and see how you're doing. I've been praying for you. Uh, and the person was like, oh, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good because I, I put on some worship music and I made myself worship uh, and that kind of helped me to get my heart right. And once you're moving your heart, your mind follows. Your, your voice follows. Sometimes it starts with your voice. And then you lead your heart into it. But worship never, listen to me, worship never fails. Because the purpose of worship is to lift our eyes to him. And once we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look at him full in the face, the troubles don't disappear, okay? The circumstances don't magically evaporate. But there's something more glorious, more hope-filled, more eternal to fix our eyes upon. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Worship is about surrender. Your way, not mine. In Gethsemane, Jesus is worshipping the Father when he says, not my will, but yours. It's a surrender. This is, Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity, he's part of the Godhead, and yet he goes, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This re-establishing trust, it is dethroning myself and my circumstances. When I sit on the throne, I'm the usurper. When my circumstances sit on the throne, it is a usurper. Jesus, when he sits on the throne, my perspective is fixed. Hope rises, even in the pain. And it's all to the glory of God. Listen, I'm going to stop here.